broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network. This is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I uh, think we have a very special show for you here during this holiday season. We will be uh, bringing on board uh, Alan Bean, a uh, reverend based in Tulia, Texas, heads up the... Uh uh, Friends of Justice organization, man very much involved in monitoring what's going on in our courts. And and we'll hear from uh, Ann Cullum. She and her family were uh, one of the 1.6 million Americans arrested last year for drug charges. It turns out there were uh, informants, uh, snitches, if you will, trying to implicate her and her family. And uh, we'll we'll get the details on that. And I, are you with me, Alan? Yes, I am. We're, we're going to go ahead and bring uh, Anne uh, on here in just a moment. But if you would just kind of summarize this situation, what went down with their their family? Okay. Well, this was uh, an incident that <clears throat> excuse me started with a uh, a drug raid um, back in two thousand and one, uh, October twenty second, two thousand and one. Uh, so it was almost five years ago now so this is, that this has been going on. Um, and it appears to me, after looking at this very carefully, that uh, like a lot of police departments, um, the uh, Acadia Parish Sheriff's Department uh, conducted a raid in which they uh, presented a local magistrate with a very vague um, search warrant and then uh, received permission on the basis of that warrant to, to raid the house. And then, um, in retrospect, they used a, a confidential informant named Stevie Charlow to back up their testimony, but he refused to do so, uh, so much so that he even refused to uh, appear before the grand jury. Uh, he gave two written and tape-recorded statements saying that the drug transaction that was at the basis of the of the uh, search warrant never happened, et cetera, et cetera. So because those facts were, were vague and almost impossible to uh, sell to a jury, um, when this case went federal, <clears throat> the Department of Justice decided that they would line up uh, about three dozen inmate uh, witnesses uh, and basically give them an opportunity to cut five years uh, on average off of their very draconian min mandatory minimum federal sentences, which are, you know, often uh, begin at five years. Uh, if you have any kind of a, a prior, you're looking probably at 20 years. And uh, many of the people were who uh, were asked to, to implicate the Colombs were doing 25 or 30 years, some of them more than that. One of them was doing a veritable life sentence. And uh, so they asked these guys... Um, whether they had ever had any drug dealings with the Colognes. Of course, the, the proviso was that if they said yes, they got five years off their sentence, and if they said no, it was tough luck. Um, and so, not surprisingly, under those circumstances, a, uh, these guys were just lining up. Now, we have since learned that this is hardly the first time uh, nationally or in the Western Division of the uh, of the. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Department of Justice, um, that this kind of uh, 
testimony has been used on a grand scale. In fact, this has been going on in, in more and more explicit ways over the last uh, five years, particularly. They've been getting more and more brazen um, to the point where in the Cologne case, uh, the, the uh, government's case was almost completely dependent on these inmate snitches. And they were basically, everybody knows that these guys are inherently untrustworthy, but they lined up so many of them that the jury was bound to think, well, some of these guys must be telling the truth. And that's basically the way it went down. And, and with that, I, I want to uh, go ahead and, and bring online, if we can, uh, Ann Cullum, uh, the, the mother of, of the family, so uh, entwined into this case. Are, are you with us, Ann? Yes. Hello. Well, welcome to our show. We're glad you could be with us. Well, thank you. Yes, ma'am. I know it's been a difficult, long situation for you. And if you could tell us how it's, uh, it's bad enough when, it, when a person's guilty and, and they, they do these draconian things, but being innocent, t tell us how it impacted your lives and, and the lives of your family. Well, it really destroyed us. I mean, here it is, a family that is so close. I brought up my kids that, you know, they work for a living. And above all, you do, and you do not rely on other people. And when it came to a point where we had got arrested for all of this stuff, and I'm saying, how and why? You, you continue to ask yourself that, and you find that you look at your kids, and they are so distraught about this that it's really tearing them apart, knowing that they had not done anything wrong, but yet we are guilty until we prove ourselves innocent. And this is what we really basically had to do. We didn't know the guys. We didn't know nothing about snitching and all the drug transaction that they were saying had gone on. We didn't know anything about it. We we lived it. Yes, ma'am. Now, perhaps, uh, Alan, you can answer this, but this is not, uh, you, you touched on it, this is not a lone incident. This no. is this is not uh, unique no. in, in its application. Your thoughts, sir? Well, no. I mean, one of the interesting things is a lot of the snitches that had testified against the Colombs had testified in previous cases multiple multiple times. Uh, Dexter Harmon is probably the best example. The guy was given, I, I believe, if memory serves, a 25-year sentence. And in the federal system, there's no parole. So if they give you 25, you're going to do almost all of that. And uh, he has been able, over the course of about uh, six years, to whittle his um, his um, prison sentence down to virtually uh, a four... Uh, well, let me put it this way. He's getting out the day after Christmas, um, reports have it. And so he's been able to take a 25-year uh, sentence and whittle it down to five or six years just by testifying repeatedly over and over again uh, on people that he... Uh, previously had connection with now in the past a lot of this kind of snitch testimony was used the way it was supposed to be used the way congress had kind of envisioned it being used that is sort of as icing on the cake they had phone logs they had western union wire money wires to show that people were were in contact with each other that they were they had financial dealings with one another and then they would use the testimony to sort of piece things together and sort of put the icing on the cake but more and more, there was a tendency to use the snitch of testimony as the entire cake, not the icing. And so I think this finally reached its most bizarre uh, conclusion in, in the Cologne case. And 
not only uh, did these guys testify in cases previous to the Cologne case, but they have been lined up to, pre- to testify in cases in the future, and that is why this case is so unsettling to the Department of Justice. Thank you for that, Alan. And it, it is it reminds one a bit of the uh, the snitching that went on in the Soviet Union. A spy on every corner, people willing to trade uh, information, whether true or fabricated, for advantage. And uh, it's, it's rather scary, uh, Miss Collum. There is no I, I, I have no better word than band aid. There is no easy solution. No way for you and, and your your boys to. To put your lives back together to move move forward, is there? There's no government assistance uh, to after no. what they've done. No, uh, you know we had just been such a close family, knew that we just had to go on. We had to hold our heads up and just move forward. It, you know, it's something that in our wildest dream did not think would ever happen to us, being that we live in a quiet town you know I, I we just never knew something like this could come up well uh, from my perspective i mean i i hear about it i read about it i see the the constant daily stories that parallel your situation uh, to one degree or another and and i'm appalled that that our system of justice has has turned to this this uh snitch society if you will as as our law enforcement rather than good solid police work they they choose to uh you know go, go after the little people for you know made up stories yes and and that's really what it is i mean it it, it then got to a point where you're going to go out and get people that can lie on other people so so that you can I don't even know how to put it, but carry out your job for the day. Go after the guilty. And once you get the guilty, then let them spend their time for what they've done. Don't have them, you know, create a way to put innocent people behind bars. Yes, ma'am. And uh, y'all correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way I understand it, it, it got to the point where there were pictures of your family circulating within, behind the prison bars, and, and stories being sold or swapped uh, for advantage. It, it, would that sum it up? Very much so. I mean, they, they were selling our pictures, selling information about us so that whoever would have gotten on that witness stand, they could have picked us out. They had the photographs. Right. They, they could have studied us, and, and whatever else they needed, someone had to provide it. This is Alan Bean here again. I, I think what happened in the federal prison system, and what is continuing to happen, was virtually inevitable. Uh, when you give people uh, the power to knock five years off um, a draconian 25-year sentence, for instance, um, <laughs> that's like that's like giving somebody a million dollars. Only the million dollars can only hint at the psychological impact of getting that gift of five years of freedom. Because that's five full years that you would have spent in the joint that you're good at getting to spend in the free world. And what happened was that uh, you know a lot of the drug dealers, especially at the higher levels, the kingpin types who uh, had been nailed in previous uh, drug drug stings and, and been prosecuted using conspiracy law um, are highly entrepreneurial people. You know, they're businessmen. And uh, a lot of them cooked up these schemes where they were trying to profit 
from selling information on uh, federal defendants in, in drug cases. And so as soon as it became known within the prison system that somebody was being looked at by the Fed, even before they had been indicted by a grand jury, uh, the fact that somebody, a name, got into the federal system, everybody would be looking for information. And um, my, my sense is, uh, although I can't prove this, that the uh, Department of Justice, the, the assistant uh, U.S. attorneys, were providing information and not just, you know, pictorial information um, and also uh, even transcripts of grand jury testimony, it has been suggested to me. And again, I cannot prove that, but uh, the kind of testimony that was being presented on the stand would, would indicate that that was happening. Uh, and what finally happened, there was, a, there was a young man in the Three Rivers um, Federal Prison, which I believe is close to Corpus Christi, and uh, he had paid $2,200, and he can prove this because he, he has the receipts that, that he paid in, in uh, I believe, Western Union. Uh, he can prove that his family paid $2,200 for information on the Cologne family and I, perhaps other uh, dependents as well. The guy who <laughs> promised to provide this information, as soon as the transfer happened, uh, he was transferred to another prison and just sort of disappeared, and this guy felt he had been ripped off. So right in the middle of trial, he writes a letter to a uh, U.S. assistant U.S. attorney complaining that uh, he had been ripped off and uh, saying that uh, he was very upset about this. And I think what had happened is that the, the um, inmate who had been trying to, to run this scam on this poor guy, uh, had given him to believe that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office was in on it, was part of the deal. And so acting in that information and in that belief, he contacted the Assistant U.S. Attorney, and I, I've got to hand it to the government. They did the right thing. They handed the information over to the judge. The judge uh, made it available to defense counsel. Um, the judge, in retrospect, says he should have called a mistrial right at that point, but he didn't. Uh, and so the jury never knew that this was happening, and so they, they weren't able, the jury was not able to put the snitch testimony in proper context. But uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, <laughs> there have since, uh, and, and Anne uh, might want to talk about this a little bit, uh, other people have come forward when uh, Anne and her sons were convicted by the uh, virtually all-white jury. Um, other people came forward to tell them other things. You know, it just got the plot thickened and thickened after that point. Alan, uh, if you uh, would uh, uh, point folks to your website. <clears throat> okay. It's uh, fojtulia.org. Uh, and um, I have written extensively on this subject. And so if you want to get into the nitty-gritty, you can find all the information there. Um, but the uh, media has picked this up to some extent. There have been some stories, uh, particularly in the New, New Orleans paper, the um, Times-Picayune. And uh, so hopefully, I'm really hoping that the national media will pick up on this and, uh, and really blow the whistle on some of this stuff because it's the consequences and the implications of this story, I think, are absolutely horrendous. <clears throat> We're speaking also with uh, Ann Colum, and I want to thank her for joining us and, and give her a, a chance, uh, any closing thoughts you'd like to relay, ma'am? This will be the best Christmas ever. I have my sons and myself will be home for Christmas. So I really have to thank Chuck O'Melanson, George Chuck O'Melanson, for really looking into the case. And he gave us our life back. Wonderful. Thank you, Ann Colum. Thank you so much for being our guest on Cultural Baggage. Thank you. All right.
Here's some good advice. Whether you're angry or whether it's to lower your criminal sentence or if it's for money, snitching is just plain wrong. Next time I see that son of a bitch smoking a joint, I'm going to have his ass busted. You're under arrest. Put your, put your hands put your hands behind your back. Stop struggling. Not only will you hurt the arrestee, you will hurt his family, any organizations he belongs to, and in the long run, you will hurt yourself. Traitors, liars, cowards, snitches. We swim in a sea of snitches nowadays. That last quote was from the noted San Francisco attorney, Tony Serra. It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Serious infections, headaches, abdominal pain, vomiting, nausea, injection site reaction, tuberculosis, lymphoma, depression, personality disorders, multiple sclerosis, seizures, death. Time's up. The answer from Amgen and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, Enbrel for arthritis. This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's Corrupt Cop Stories for the Drug Truth Network. I'm tired of talking about crooked jail guards like I did last week, so let's talk about drug-dealing cops and former cops instead. I have a pair of them this week. In Portsmouth, Virginia, a Portsmouth police lieutenant was arrested Tuesday on cocaine distribution charges. Lieutenant Brian Keith Mohammed Abdul Ali, a 21-year veteran of the force who also heads the department's drug-fighting unit, was arrested along with his nephew, a civilian. Both faced charges of felony conspiracy to distribute cocaine. Ali was in jail with no bond set as of Wednesday. Meanwhile, in New York City, a retired NYPD officer was one of nine men arrested on charges they peddled drugs at a city-owned Manhattan marina. The arrest last week at the Dykeman Street Marina were the culmination of a six-month investigation where undercover officers purchased heroin, crack, ecstasy, and marijuana on at least 48 occasions. Former NYPD officer Jeremy O'Rourke, who quit the department in the late 1980s, it's accused of brokering deals between large-scale dealers and buyers who turned out to be narcs. He faces multiple counts of criminal sale of a controlled substance and conspiracy. His bail is set at $500,000. As always, there are more corrupt cop stories this week. Check them out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org. Terry Nelson spent 32 years serving the U.S. government as a customs, border, and air interdiction officer. He retired last year as a GS-14, the equivalent of a bird colonel. This is Terry Nelson speaking on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, more unintended consequences of the drug war. This past week, the Houston Chronicle ran an AP article on corruption in Brownsville, Texas. The article stated, but these days, it's not just politicians lining their pockets or crooked lawmen taking bags of cash and overlooking drug loads, the culture of bribery is quietly seeping into new realms of government, including school districts, municipal courts, and others, experts say. The article tied some of the blame on the proximity to Mexico and the culture of La Mordida. I'll place the blame where it belongs, and that's with the people taking the bribes. However, this should not come as a surprise to any of us. There's so much money thrown around by the drug dealers and cartels to influence people in positions of authority that it's only natural that the temptation for some is to get their piece of the action because it seems so easy or everyone is doing it. During my career as a federal officer, I've heard those expressions all too often after the person has been arrested. One of the major unintended consequences of the drug war and the artificially high prices that drugs are sold for is the amount of money that is available to influence decisions. Now, not all bribery and corruption is drug-related. And we will never be able to stop bribery and corruption, we will, and we will never be able to stop the drug use. However, we can influence the amount of money available 
to corrupt public officials by removing the profit from the drug dealers. Our citizens have lost much of the respect they once had for public officials due to the drug war and its unintended consequences, such as bribery. The Houston Chronicle article stated, Some locals in the Valley blame federal authorities. The government creates crime by using unsavory informants to entrap otherwise honest people, said Al Alvarez, a McAllen attorney who has defended public officials. Entrapment is yet another byproduct of the war on drugs. When dealing with a consensual crime, meaning two or more agree to commit the infraction, the easiest way to combat it is by using paid informants, creating the seeds of deception and distrust. Many times, people are killed by drug gangs thinking that the victim had informed on them. Sometimes, an undercover officers are placed in situations where they must befriend the very people they're supposed to inform on. It also exposes them to a lifestyle so contrary to their own that it invariably will influence behavior and sometimes corrupt an otherwise good stand-up cop. Lee believes that drugs are too dangerous to be left in the hands of criminals. It's time to regulate and control them. Let's work together to change this failed policy and help build a better future for ourselves and our children. This is Terry Nelson at www.leap.cc, signing off. This is Cliff Thorne from Africa C, and what I want to talk about today is the benefits from running a political campaign. During the campaign, I talked a lot about drug policy and the need to legalize, medicalize, and decriminalize drugs. And one of the things that came out of it is that this group, these group of doctors approached me a couple of weeks ago and they wanted to talk about and have me come in and talk to this group about uh, bringing in heroin maintenance slash safe injection rooms. So it's very important to understand that having, looking at drug policy and, and having a multi-pronged approach, it just can't be one thing, it's got to be all things. And Eric Sterling from the Criminal Justice Foundation uh, sent out a memo saying we have to change institutions. And one of the best ways to do that is in the political arena. So if, in fact, we can get this heroin maintenance slash safe injection rooms off the table within a year or so, I think running for political office has done a lot. And what has happened is most of the legislators in the state government of Connecticut want to go with a regulated market. However, they don't feel comfortable for fear of losing their jobs. So it is up, it is up to us as, in, as reformers to try to get this message out even further. So I think it's very, very important that those people that are thinking about running for office to do this. I'm not saying this is what the movement should, the entire movement should do, but what I am saying, this has to be a multi-pronged attack. We have to challenge drug policy and ending prohibition from all angles. All right, a, a quick program note. Our guest next week on the Cultural Baggage Show will be Barry... Cooper, he's an ex-cop, now a Leap spokesman. He has a new DVD out. You've probably been hearing about it. Never Get Busted Again. Following is a Drug Truth Network editorial. The drug war is a monster created from malformed parts a la Frankenstein. I seek your help in destroying this monster. I'm a former cop and current member of law enforcement against prohibition. Our website, leap.cc. This eternal war on certain molecular combinations functions to empower cartels, terrorists, and violent gangs. Thanks. <laughs>
Symptoms of drug war include overdose deaths, increasing numbers of AIDS and hepatitis C cases, and our children having easy access to drugs. These symptoms are not caused by drugs being in our society, but usually are the direct result of drug prohibition itself. Violent crime is rising because we insist law enforcement officers continue to spend tens of millions of man hours looking under car seats, digging through car trunks, and rifling through ashtrays looking for high school Harry's bag of stash. More than 50% of law enforcement, court time, and prison beds are allocated to drug users and sellers. Spinoff situations are a myriad, but amongst them is the fact that because prisons are increasingly filling up with drug cases, we make room via the early release of violent criminals uh, back into our population. Each year we arrest 1.65 million of our fellow citizens for having bags of plant products in their possession. Each year we spend 40 billion, some say as much as 125 billion per year in trying to squelch the flow of recreational drugs into and around our nation. Truthfully, these efforts have only succeeded in creating job opportunities within the black market in drugs, world's largest multi-level marketing organization. According to the United Nations, the black market in drugs has yearly revenues of $400 billion. In the U.S., we play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? In Latin America and Afghanistan, by way of the drug trade, they play Who Wants to Be a Billionaire? Perhaps we should consider why, in the land of the free and home of the brave, we, the people of the United States, are the least willing to embrace the truth that drug abuse is bad. But the drug prohibition is significantly, obviously worse. The day we regulate the distribution of these recreational drugs is the day we evaporate the worth of Osama bin Laden's opium stash. It's the day we destroy the Latin American drug cartels, and it's the day we eliminate the reason for which most violent street gangs exist. The day we control these drugs, we limit the number of overdose deaths and numbers of hep C and AIDS cases. We will also take away our children's easy access to drugs when we eliminate the multi-level marketeers that are now ensconced in every neighborhood. The downside is that we may for a short time have more adult drug users dabbling to see what the fuss is about, but at least they will not have to buy drugs made by amateurs, cut with everything from rat poison to laxatives, and will be able to call for assistance should they make a wrong choice. Perhaps the biggest plus we will realize from ending prohibition is that we will then have plenty of prison beds to hold violent criminals and ample room to hold those who would sell drugs to our children. The only way to kill the drug war monster is by ending drug prohibition. Jesus was way cool. Everybody liked Jesus. Everybody wanted to hang out with him. Anything he wanted to do, he did. He turned water into wine. And if he wanted to, he could have turned wheat into marijuana, or sugar into cocaine, or vitamin pills into amphetamines. He walked on the water and swam on the land. He would tell these stories, and people would listen. He was really cool. If you were blind or lame, you just went to Jesus, and he would put his hands on you, and you would be healed. That's so cool. He could have played guitar better than Hendrix. He could have told the future. He could have baked the most delicious cake in the world. He could have scored more goals than Wayne Gretzky. He could have danced better than Barishnikov. Jesus could have been funnier than any comedian you can think of. Jesus was way cool. 
He told people to eat his body and drink his blood. That's so cool. Jesus was so cool. But then some people got jealous of how cool he was, so they killed him. But then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, danced around, and went up to heaven. I mean, that's so cool. Jesus was way cool. No wonder there are so many Christians. Long-time listeners know the full, compelling, absolute truth about this drug war. You know that the only way of ending prohibition, this eternal war on our own children, will uh, bring about the end of the cartels. So I'm asking you once again, help me to kill this drug war monster. And per usual, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. So please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of Engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth, the show produced at the KPFT Studios of uh, Pacific Studios. And uh, again, I'm tap dancing on the edge of Happy Holidays.